Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. I wrote a letter to then President Ronald Reagan that we should restore this place. And my mom still has that letter. She's she's kept it all these years. Wow, yeah. And it's, it's kind of came full circle. And I, I, I recently did the Loeb Fellowship at, at Harvard a couple years ago. And the Loeb Fellow director, I told him that story when I was interviewing. And he said, I've got something for you. On this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Howard, co-founder and director of Team Better Block. Andrew was one of the original founders of the Build a Better Block project. Alongside his neighbors, he built the first two Better Blocks in Dallas, Texas, and pioneered the idea of using pop-up demonstrations as an urban planning method. Over the past eight years, he and his team have refined how Better Block fits into community outreach, revitalization, complete streets, and public space planning and design projects. Now having been used in over 150 communities from Sydney, Australia to Bethel, Vermont, Better Block is seen as an alternative to the typical design and defend urban planning method of the past. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by authentic form and function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at authenticff.com. And finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at authenticff.com. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Howdy. So you are now an accomplished urban planner, but you did not necessarily grow up in a big city. So uh, I'd love to start with you telling the listeners about your roots. Yeah, I'm uh, originally from southwestern Oklahoma, kind of tumbleweed country out there, small town about 25,000. And uh, dad owned his own company. So a little that entrepreneurial spirit probably resonating in me. And um, moved to Texas in the teenage years. And uh, that got me a little bit closer to some of my family, specifically my uh, my grandmother, my dad's mother. And um, yeah, I think some of the fondest memories that I have and probably the first instance that I kind of had an appreciation of of cities was with her. It's kind of a, a, a joke around the family that at some point Masita was who we, what we called her would show up and tell you to get in the car and you're going to go on a road trip with her and go most of the time, you know, we'd, we'd go visit a family, some of them deceased. So we'd go to some, uh, some cemeteries and also see some, some cousins, you know, that we'd never get to see out in West Texas and just all the stories that she would tell about family history during those times. And, um, and the greasy spoon restaurant usually came around with that in the, in the ratty hotel that we'd probably stay in. On one of those trips, we stopped in Mineral Wells, Texas, and I think this is the first time that I kind of had a an appreciation for for historical buildings. And we we visited the Baker Hotel, which was kind of a historic health resort that was located there in in West Texas. And 
it was dilapidated and kind of falling down, Chris. And uh, you know, my my grandmother at that time, she's like, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna go in this place." And you know, she's all about like eighty nine pounds, <laughs> and the door's locked, like a little, you know. I'm not sure how well, but she like kicks the door in or pushes the door in. And, you know, here I am like eight or nine years old, you know, following my grandma into this historic hotel that's just art deco grandeur within it. Wow. And she was just so passionate about it. And I I think she really loved that time period, you know, the, the 20s and, you know, the decadence of that era. And that, that kind of rubbed off on me. And I remember when I got home, I wrote a letter to then President Ronald Reagan that we should restore this place. And my mom still has that letter. She's she's kept it all these years. Wow. Yeah. And it's it's kind of came full circle. And I I recently did the Loeb Fellowship at, at Harvard a couple of years ago. And the Loeb Fellow director, I told him that story when I was interviewing. And he said, I've got something for you. And over my desk right now is a a framed picture of the Baker Hotel in Mineralis, Texas. And come to find out his his parents and grandparents had something to do with it as well. So <laughs> No way. Wow. That's very small. Uh yeah, that's that's when the the life life paths collide there. That's a small world situation. Exactly. Where is the hotel now? Is it is it still in in disrepair, or, or what's the status of it now? So the I mean the amazing thing is it's it's gone through multiple hands. People saying they're going to do something with it, and most recently, a person from Fort Worth has bought it and has committed to to restoring it. So I think what's neat there though is I've chatted with the city a bit there, and they've realized that the town can be better right now, and so they've actually been going in and kind of fixing up around the hotel before it even is has seen any dirt turned. So oh wow. Yeah. So that was, you said, about seven or eight years old, is that right? Kind of as a yeah. young, young kid, you were touring around, you would go on these road trips with your grandmother and kind of maybe get these experiences that you weren't necessarily fully aware of how they were impacting you at the time. You go on, you're you're I'm I'm assuming kind of going to middle school, high school or junior high, high school. What what happens then? Do you know where you want to? Do you know where you want to head, or what did you study at that point? You know, I didn't. I didn't have much direction at that time. I, I wasn't probably the best high school student. I think I was, you know, I was probably a B student, and uh, I ended up going to junior college actually <laughs> after after high school. Then I had some friends going on to uh, Stephen F. Austin, which is kind of a, a secondary school, and. In Texas, but while I was there, I took a geography class, and man, that just really hit me. I I felt I understood it well, and it wasn't you know like capitals and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Geography, it was more human geography of like people and their place on the earth, and and how they interact with all of the different systems that occur, and so. There weren't a lot. There weren't. I was like, oh, all right, I want to take more of these classes. Well, at that school, there weren't very many, so I, I ended up transferring to uh, Texas, uh, Texas A&M, and doing their uh, geography and environmental studies program. Oh wow! So that was, was that? Would you say the first spark when it came to the urban world or kind of the urban planning ideas, or or where did that did that evolve <laughs> at Texas A&M? It did. I mean, I. I 
I still was on that journey. I remember talking to one professor and I was like, I've got these two classes. I can either, you know, go the environmental route if I go this way, or I'm going to go, you know, more towards cities and, and urban if I go this way. And he just kind of laughed at me and was like, this decision is not being made right now. Like <laughs> you, you have a long way to go before you decide what your career is. <laughs> and it wasn't really until my senior year that I, I think I had like one more kind of soft credit to take. And I ended up just taking an urban planning class in the, uh, the School of Architecture at AM. And it was just my favorite class. And that was about when SimCity was coming out. Oh, you know? yeah. Totally and, remember SimCity, yeah. Yeah. And so we we had to build a city in class. And so, you know, I just, that was the neatest thing ever. For any of the young listeners, let's just pause there for a second. <laughs> Can you explain SimCity? Because the young urban planners out there might not have had the the pleasure of tinkering around with SimCity. Oh, man, we can even go further back. Do you remember the board game Life? I do. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, these are all the roots of urban planning in, in, in modern culture. But uh, yeah, SimCity was, you know, you basically were the mayor of a city from ground ground up. And, you know, you digitally created this city and, uh, you know, hurricanes would come and a plague would come and, uh, you know, blight. And uh, I think if you're really successful in it, maybe the aliens would show up at some point and take right. your city over. But, <laughs> and this isn't uh, something that happened in real time. Like, there were moments where things would happen and then there was long stretches of time where, where nothing would happen. And I believe as a user, you could choose to sort of keep it more so quote unquote real time, right? Or you could speed up time and see what happens. Is that right? Yeah, you could hit the, hit the go button on it. I think we're, you know, I was kind of warped you know, maybe a little bit in the schooling that urban planning and design was just this you know, very physical thing that it was just that you went out and if you designed a good city, everything's going to work and get along and it's going to be, it's going to be beautiful. Mm. And that it was, you know, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of the teachings were, were based on the physical form back then. So what was your first glimpse of professional work at that point? So you've, you've moved into Texas A&M, your senior year, the spark kind of hits. And then um, to your point, you just made what what was your first dose of reality? Man, I had some bad jobs. You know, I had like, I was a tree trimmer and in summer in Texas, you know, it's like 110 mm-hmm. degrees outside with like 100% humidity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I had done the uh, laborious work for a while and enjoyed it, but I was I was ready to to do a little bit of the desk work one, uh, one semester. And I, I saw a flyer for transportation planning and that they had an internship available at the local MPO, which is every city over 25,000 people has a kind of a, almost a mini branch of the federal government that does some of the, the transportation planning. I walked in and I think they gave me the job before I even sit down. They're like, yeah, you're a living body. You're here. Great. <laughs> sit down. And, uh, Ended up, man, I just had a great boss there. And I think I've had that throughout my career, just these these bosses that, that let me do my thing and make my own mistakes. And and we had to update the 25-year plan for their the region. 
And he's like, here, you can do this, you know? <laughs> and so I think, you know, I've enjoyed a lot of autonomy even from the beginning, but that really, it, it just fit, it fit with me. I, I understood transportation policy and I understood how some of the, the travel demand models worked. Mm. Maybe from playing SimCity, you know, I just wasn't afraid to get in there and, and you know, break, break any of the computer models. And so uh, it stuck with me and I, I got to, I got to do some, some high level planning early on in my career. And I know that you feel really fortunate to be, to, to at least in the very beginning of your career, even working with, with great people around you and um, having that learning experience right out of the gate. But I do know that it was also a time where you felt like you were learned, it was learned that planning was somewhat disconnected from the real people of the community. Can you touch on that? Yeah. I think we the process that we rely relied upon then was very much uh, the experts come up with the plan. They produce it and share it with the uh, the public and usually defend it, have to defend it in some way. And then, you know, maybe some minor changes happen from the public engagement, but in, in general, it was a technical exercise mm-hmm. that happened um, in planning our cities. So what, what would you say stood out the most to you at that, at that point in your career? Early career, you're working with great people, but you also see this, you know, potential issue on how it's approached. Where did that kind of leave you, leave you hanging? <laughs> you know, I think it wasn't until the next chapter when I went into consulting where I started to see that these these models that we were using to predict human the community, we were, you know, we were we were using those to predict travel and and even land uses. Uh it was very technical side of things of doing those. And I think what I started to learn was that you can manipulate them to say anything you want. Yeah. Yeah. What was an example of something like that where you're kind of put in this role of getting out this report or, or, or putting out this recommendation and you kind of saw like, maybe this isn't the best way to go about it. <laughs> oh man, we, we had one we were doing and uh, I think the output, it was just not what the, what the client wanted to see, you know, and they were, they were very much, Hey, you need to change these numbers to match what policy we're talking about. And so you know, I think that's one example. And then, you know, a little later, I I got to work in in New Orleans in the post Katrina era. So that really started forming my ideas of how the planning process may be a little bit broken. Oh, I bet. So, like, set the stage for us. What what was the what did that look like? Kind of when you walked into it down there. Yeah, it was a huge team of of you know planners and consultants and engineers that were hired to be part of the the reconstruction in uh, New Orleans post Katrina. You know, we were we were doing these public meetings, really doing a visioning project, which was was pretty popular back in the early 2000s was to, you know, go 10,000 foot out and, and, you know, you've got an ability here to kind of transform this city. How do do you do it? And, you know, the, the process that was used, and it still is being used in America in some senses, you know, we lay down this map of your city or your neighborhood and, and we hand you some pens and we say, here, draw your utopia, you know, mark <laughs> up this map with what you want to see happen. 
know, it's hard. I think it's hard for folks, especially in post-disaster places, to think about a bright future. Or just, you know, I've seen it in many communities, you know, folks just, they can't see past the issues that are right at hand. You know, I think Henry Ford said, you know, if you ask people, you know, what what the next technology was, they would probably have said a faster horse, (laughs) you know, at some point. And so, you know, I remember being in one of those post-Katrina planning sessions in this big hall in the convention center of New Orleans. And, um, this lady just stood up, you know, when we were given instructions on how to do this workshop. And she just said, you know, how can you ask me to do this when I still have neighbors that don't have electricity on? Mm. And I think that's when it really started to hit me that I was like, this planning process is broken. It's too, it's too much reliant on bringing people to you and us not going to them as practitioners. So that's, it was probably the first flicker where it started being like, man, this is I'm not sure I'm designed to be in the convention center doing this kind of work. I, I might need something that's a little more tactic, tactile. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And probably a time where you're asking, how are we helping here? Does this even matter? Or, you know, these people don't necessarily need to be drawing out their utopias. They need, like you said, they need to figure out the electricity getting turned back on first. Yeah. And, and you know, that's just a, a a minute example. I think a lot in cities we we go and we ask folks, you know, here design this whole trail system for the whole city, and it's like these people, and folks are like, I just want to get across the street, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I don't have a crosswalk, you know, and so I I think that's a lot of where my career was heading. Us, you know, I started out doing this big regional planning, working for MPOs, looking big scale, and, it, and it's slowly been creeping smaller and smaller and more uh, granular. And I think that's a good transition point to this idea of design and defend that you bring up a lot as an urban planner. And, and it turns out that that strategy isn't one that really fits you or suited you well. Can you tell us that story? And I think that kind of comes closely after the Katrina work. It was. It was kind of leading into that. You know, I, th- I think the whole way we did public process is you know we we put things out and have people react to them and and gather that information and 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 fine tune it and I did hundreds of these kind of public public meetings. Oh, I did some in Austin once, I, like over a week. I think we did like eight public meetings, you know, during that. And yeah. and and y'all have been to these, you know, listening out there. You 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 sit in these meetings at a, at a library or. A, Oh God, the worst ones were in cafeterias at, at <laughs> grade schools because it still smelled like lunch in there, you know, right. and it was just like and, and little kids sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you're trying to talk about uh uh transit or or you know big zoning changes, and there's this, you know, there's like crayons smudged everywhere. But you know what happens at those is like, you know, you say something like we're going to add bike lanes to this, you know, arterial street and the grumpy old guy or not even old, the the grumpy dude gets up and yells Carmageddon and says, it's not going to work. And you're trying to take away my cars and gets angry and raises his fist. And the whole crowd kind of comes, you know, feeds off that anger and gets behind him mm-hmm. and you've kind of lost the meeting. And, uh, not that that happened every time I went to do one of these, but it, it it was prevalent. I mean, people get angry when you start talking about change because their worst fears come out. 
the worst things that can happen are, are, are risen because they they haven't seen it or felt it or been a part of it. They're just afraid that you're going to take away something from it. And so do, doing those on a, a normal basis as a consultant, uh, it was starting to wear on me on a, from a physical side. I'd been doing that for about 14 years at this point. And um, I started to get really sick, Chris. I was I was getting ulcers and um, I was breaking down as a, uh, as a person too, because I, I started to not believe very much in the planning process that we were, we were pushing. Yeah. And yet from that dark place, something happened around 2010 that involved a bike lane and some, as I, as I know the story, illegal painting <laughs> that would eventually become a catalyst for what you're doing today. Yeah. The, the light was was shining through. Yeah, so I I had I had moved into kind of the emerging part of town here in Dallas, Texas, and there was this guy down there, Jason Roberts. He was talking about bringing streetcars back to the neighborhood, and he was leading bike rides, wearing funny wigs, and and hosting uh, Bastille Day celebrations and playing in a band on the weekends. And so uh, kind of a cult figure, you know, in our neighborhood. And uh, so when Jason calls you, you're like, you pick up the phone and you're like, hey, what, what's going on, man? What, what do you need? You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, hey, I need you to come. You, you know about bike lanes. You design those, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I design them. And he's like, hey, come down here. We're, we're going to paint one. And I'm like, uh... Okay, you know, I got my safe like consulting job working. You know, most of our clients are the city of Dallas. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm a little hesitant, but you know, this guy, he's like, you know, he's kind of an authority figure. I show up down there, and he's like, yeah, yeah. I talked to the city council member. She's she's cool with it. Let's let's paint one right here. And so I kind of you know sketched it up and designed it. And we went to Home Depot and bought the paint and like started painting this bike lane. And I was asking, I was like, what are we doing here? And he's like. We're building the perfect block. I'm huh. like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, it's, it's going to be like Copenhagen for the weekend. And I was like, ah, oh, all right, this sounds cool. That's kind of how we first got started, just doing these demonstrations. And later, one of our friends was like, you know what? It's it's not perfect. It's just better. And so that's where Better Block came from. You know, Jason had also asked a bunch of friends. You know what? What's missing from the area? And they said, "Oh, we really like a kids' art studio and a coffee shop, and a flower market." And so he said, "Oh, great! I bet you could run one of those." And so he like blackmailed them basically into doing it by putting on Facebook, "Like Jesse is going to open the best coffee shop ever." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we didn't even have a coffee. I don't even think the electricity was on in one of the buildings. So you know, we brought coffee from down the street there, and. Uh, over a weekend, you know, it didn't look exactly like Copenhagen, but we made it feel good and people understood what we were talking about. And I guess, you know, my observation coming from a planner was I heard all these conversations of people talking about place and talking about traffic calming and all these nerdy words that we put out there, mm-hmm. you know, to, to call this stuff. They were making up their own dialogue about it and, and understanding it because they were experiencing it. And I was like, man, this is better than any public meeting I've ever done. And that hit home for you, right? That that was even sort of an emotional 
response, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a relief. I felt energized to to be a planner again. I felt energized to that our cities, you know, could be fixed. You know, people's better nature would come out if you gave them that experience. They they wouldn't have their worst fears come out and yell Carmageddon or you're stealing my cars. You know, they would they would come out and say, "Oh, I get it. Like you can cross the street and your kids can be safe and we can live and work in our neighborhood now." So tell me what happened then. Did you continue consulting for a while longer or when did the the beginnings of the Better Block become what is today Team Better Block? Yeah, you know, uh, inspiration and the universe, you know, sometimes it it taps you on the shoulder and and sometimes it smacks you across the face. And uh, I I really needed to be smacked across the face. So we we continued. We did another one of these pop-ups later that year. And all these were getting huge press stories, you know, locally and nationally. It was kind of going viral. We put a video out there and people were definitely talking about Better block within the urban planning circles and within uh, kind of local politics here in, in Dallas as well. And uh, that wasn't going over quite so well with the company that I was working with at the time. They, they, they were pretty traditional in their approach to, uh, to doing projects. So Chris, I actually, I actually got fired. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 it, it, it affected me, but I, I kind of, I, I thought we had something with this. I thought people might pay for it. And so what we charged out to do after that was, well, let's make this into a planning process. Let's, let's take this kind of guerrilla activity and how do we transition it into a way that can replace the public meeting design defend process, give people an experience and then build upon that momentum to actually change zoning, to push a transportation agenda forward. And so that's what we set out. We, uh, within a, a few months of, of being out of my own, we, we got one of our first clients and, uh, and started sharing better block, not just as a, a pop-up, but as a, a process to move communities forward. And around what time was this? What time period? <laughs> so uh, around 2011, the first few months of 2011 is when we officially formed Team Better Block. And started serving some clients at that point. And I know that you've, I've seen you reference Team Better Block as this idea of sort of emotional responsive planning. So as you got started with that real work with Team Better Block and you started to bring on new clients and new projects, how did you explain the work that you were doing and, and how, how if, if any, has that evolved over the years when you're talking about the work that you do? Sure. I think one of the, the, the quotes that we kind of knew from the very beginning there was from Warren Buffett when he said there's, there's innovators, there's imitators, and then there's idiots. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were definitely innovators and we started seeing some folks that were, were imitating our process. And, you know, I think what, that motivated us to like, all right, we really got to figure out like the nuts and bolts of why these temporary demonstration projects are are important. Chris, we did a lot of stuff wrong beginning with we 
I had some great clients because I'd been in the business for a while and they trusted us with projects. And, and, you know, I think we always learned something from them, but you know, some of those early ones, we kind of like, we packed up our truck, you know, like a big, like U-Haul full of lights and chairs and, and cafe tables. And, and we went and we, we kind of spaceship landed in San Antonio or Wichita, Kansas, or one of these places. And we set up the better block. Mm. And, uh, you know, it just didn't feel the same as that first one that we did, you know, together as a community. And um, we started to slowly realize that it was, it's not just making the place, but it's how you make it. And that people want, need to be involved in the creation of place. And that's where all the, the unique identity, that's where all the authenticity comes from, that's where the community ownership of the process comes from, is the physical act of, of making together. So we stick with that now. We, uh, we put more effort and time into kind of the social capital piece of it than uh, always having the best looking piece of, uh, you know, the best photo maybe of, of a place. Mm. And, you know, one of the, one of the, quotes and ideologies you shared with me, um, references and, and, and insistence on the virtues of smallness, which I, which I really liked. And it sounds like what you're saying is rather than stamping out quote unquote, better blocks everywhere that are maybe the same, it's, it's really more of a collaborative process with the community. Yeah. You know, I, we used to count, you know, we have a little hand clicker and we count like how many people came to the better block or, um, you know, after it happened, we would want to define, you know, like, all right, what they make permanent. And those things are important. Uh, we, we want to see change happen. But what we started realizing when we were doing these away from our own city as consultants, guides, you know, for these in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, or, you know, Seattle, Washington, or Fresno, or wherever we were, that we couldn't be there to push them forward. And so, the best act we could do was to empower a local to be an advocate and that little small time that we would spend with them and empowering them to do it would last longer. So we now count how many advocates do we make afterwards and uh, how many people have stayed engaged and used the better block as a, a point in time to get back to someday and have, and have continually shown up at city council meetings. Some of them have become, some of the past better block volunteers have become council members, have become planning commissioners, have started their own nonprofits, have quit their job at Applebee's and started their own restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are the ones that really, you know, I, I, I think we judge our success by more as, you know, did we change people's lives? Are they now a voice for this kind of stuff in their own city? What is a project that you're working on right now, or maybe that you're wrapping up right now that you're really proud of that brings together all of those themes you just referenced and then also touches on a lot of the issues and and topics that you know urban planning's facing today around mobility changes in transportation changes in the kind of the outlook from the public about how these systems are connected can you speak to a project that comes to mind that you're excited about yeah we've got a couple I'm going to share two with you real quick because I think they're kind of polar opposites. Um, yeah. One was uh, this year, we, we've been working a lot with AARP, the uh, American Association of Real Possibilities now. It's, mm-hmm. uh, they've kind of rebranded. 
And they're a great partner with, because I think they come with not a lot of baggage. Like they're not like, oh, it has to be new urbanism or it has to be complete streets. It's, you know, what does this community need? Let's apply best practices and let's let's get a really local solution to it. And this year they're emphasizing a look at rural communities. And so we went to Maine with them and um, it was really neat to work with a smaller, real small community and see what they could do there. And uh, worked with Miss Pat Brown in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. And, you know, they, they, they had an idea of what they wanted to do in the city, but they really didn't know where to apply it to. And so we help them, we help them find a neighborhood that could use some revitalization and gave them a concept plan to go with, and they went for it. And they actually painted most of the changes that we made permanently, and they've opened up a bakery and a pop-up shop to go along with it. And so I think what we're finding is that the talent and resources to do these kind of projects exist everywhere, Chris. There, there's not this like limited pool of um, talented people in America that you have to find and bring to your community. They just need an invitation and they need some of the planning tools to, to accomplish it. But every city, every town, every hamlet, every nook and cranny of America has talented people that if given the opportunity, they will be civic minded and they will come together and make a place better. And, and I'm sure of that we've 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 experienced it in all all corners of the United States. Mm. And then you know the next one that we're working on is in Salt Lake City, and that's with a, a scooter company that's um, actually owned by Ford called Spin. And I think they're a unique company because they're actually wanting to invest in infrastructure. And I think that's kind of the trend we're going to see in transportation in the future is a lot of private companies getting involved in delivering infrastructure. And so we're going to build some of the first micro mobility lanes in Salt Lake City that uh, share space between cyclists, people in scooters, people in mobility assisted vehicles as well. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, that battle over the right of way is, is now becoming real. And uh, we're starting to see the expansion of kind of non-motorized into those places. And, and people are, want them fast, you know, it's, it's changing so quickly. You know, a couple of years ago, scooters, we would never thought of those, you know, that's something a little kid rides or something. And now it's, it's a key missing link in the transit system. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking speaking personally, I'm I'm a cyclist out here in Denver, and I'm I'm a big advocate for the protected bike lanes, of course. And to to even hear that that's a project that is now coming to pass with the micro mobility lanes, I I love that personally. I love that it's being pushed that way. But clearly, a lot of opinions around priorities, and as you said, right away. It's a battle every day. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, before we wrap up, I don't want to miss the chance to chat about the Loeb Fellowship at Harvard. You have a great story around that. And I would love if you would give the listeners a sense of what that's all about. Yeah. So um, for those that don't know, the Loeb Fellowship is a um, was an endowment made to the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. And it brings, um, oh, I don't know what it is now, eight or nine folks out of 
everyday practice. And for two semesters, they get to go to Harvard and kind of soak up the scene there and uh, take a little bit of a retreat from their, their normal practice. So they pull folks from architecture, planning, engineering, the arts, psychology into that program and give them some time to expand and learn kind of what the next phase of their career is going to be. So it's, it's kind of a mid-career thing. So anybody out there that's, you know, been doing this for 20, 25 years and and you think you have has something to add to the to the ongoing discussion of of where the professions are leading, I'd look into it. It's it was a great experience. Um, I did that 2014, 2015. And um, you know, something really totally unexpected lesson of that, Chris, came came out. You know, I expected to go up there and I was gonna kind of focus on real estate and like I wanted to understand how developers functioned and I kind of want to understand like why modernism was still a thing in America after <laughs> after all these years. And um I, I think, you know, after about three weeks, I I I'd had enough of that. <laughs> it's very pervasive there of kind of Le Cabusier and and modernism is is still very alive in, in the graduate school design. Uh, but what started to attract me was some of the movements that were happening within the student body, particularly in the graduate school design. This was, you know, 2014. This was just years or months after the Ferguson riots had occurred, and uh, you know, kind of pr- police brutality was coming around, and the Black Lives Matter initiative was coming out, and and there were some students there that formed something called Black and Design. And they began to have conversations about how design influences community as a color. And you know, my my project, we had Better Block has you know worked in many of those communities, and um, and tried to get down to the you know the root of where these are coming from. And um, even in the house that I was sharing there as a fellow, you live with other folks that are in the program, and it was my first time to live with. Anybody of a different race, really. I, I think I'd been pretty isolated in, in my experiences of other cultures, and so it really moved me. I, I realized I, I just, I didn't even have the skills to listen to people of color, and and you know, I, it made me think back really to those times in New, in New Orleans when I was doing those plans there, and just made me realize that I, I could never really achieve the uh, understanding of the African American struggle. But I committed to it, and I and I said I was going to to try and and have some grounding and and, and listen uh, to where where communities like that are coming from. And we had the gift of having uh, Phil Freelon, who, if you're in the architecture community out there, you all know Phil Freelon. He's the designer of the uh, African American um, History Museum in in D.C. Now he's a Renowned architect, and his wonderful wife Nina was there. Who's Nina is a um, jazz musician and, and astounding person in her own right. And I remember we were sitting at dinner with those folks, and he said something I think very poignant in that he said we 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 never give black people the mic in communities. Hmm, yeah. And I I'm not sure you literally meant like hand him the mic, but it just really sat with me and. Since that time, all the public meetings that I've had, 
I've taken that to direct heart. Like when I ask a question, I <laughs> I literally like find folks in in the in the uh, audience that may have never had the mic before, and I'll give it to them. And I'm like, you're going to tell me about your neighborhood, and you're going to tell <laughs> me a story about what it's like to grow up in in that community and and where your perspective's coming from. And so it's it 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 changed my life in a in a in a in something I didn't think was going to happen, but. That's what fellowships are supposed to do. They're supposed to surprise you with what you learn from them. Mm. And it certainly has helped my career because we're always asked to uh, to represent people that we don't look like in planning. And uh, if you only design for what you know, it's going to be a pretty, pretty dull world because not everybody has the same taste and, and comes from the same perspectives as you. So... I think that's where this emotionally responsive planning is coming from now is that we're we're able to humble ourselves a bit, see through other people's lenses of how they interact in the community, and then not just hand them the pen to, to, to draw it, but invite them out to experience it with you and build it with you and seed in that piece of authenticity that makes Nashville, Nashville, that makes New York City special that makes San Francisco different from anywhere else. I think if we keep going down that road that we're gonna have a bright future as planners and we're gonna have cities that are just more fun. Andrew, I really appreciate you sharing that story. It was, I mean, it's an emotional story and, and a somewhat raw story, but I love how it ties back into the work that you're doing with Team Better Block and maybe how that lens of the work you're doing has shifted over the years and will certainly be sharing links to both Team Better Block and the Lobe Fellowship in the show notes. Before you run though, one of the questions I really love asking all of our <laughs> guests are, given all of your experience, uh, given all of the projects you've worked on, who would you tell us to be paying attention to that you feel like is doing groundbreaking or inspiring work out there? Oh, sure. God, there's so many. You know, I really think this kind of DIY approach has grown over the last, you know, Eight, eight, nine years, it's, it's brought a lot of people into the planning world that are not planners or not designers. They're just normal folks getting involved with, with city building. And so those are some of my, my favorite folks to watch right now. So my boy, Dan Peterson with Project Backboard, he's doing amazing work with basketball courts around the world. I just bought one of his sponsored basketballs that helped fund a uh, court in Puerto Rico oh, cool. that looks like a tropical playground now. Uh, so he'll take these basketball courts that have had no love and resurface them and ask the community kind of what they identify with as far as color and texture and, and imagery and do these huge mur- murals on the basketball court and basically make a place out of something that in a lot of ways, the basketball court is sometimes the most seedy part of the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. I, I copycatted him on one of those. And man, I was surprised at how much that color and change just, it brought families out, it brought kids out. It made them feel like this is our court, not just you know people that were maybe using it in, in, a, in a negative fashion. So Dan's just regular dude, like loves basketball, loves art. So follow him, look at his project, Project Backboard. There's so many past better blockers doing doing good stuff in towns all around. My gal pal, Kate Luzon in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. She was a better block volunteer. She's been leading a lot of great projects there. One's called the Tyler Street Lab, 
where she's done an after school program with an urban planning focus on it. And um, she's bootstrapped the whole thing and I'm just super proud of her. So look for the Tyler Street Lab. And then uh, my folks in Bethel, Vermont um, with the Blossom Block there. If you look up Blossom Block, Lisa Warhol, tiny little town, like 4,000 people. Uh, they used a better block to kind of get it going and now they've attracted all kind of stuff like a, uh, a brewery, a co-working spot. I'm like, how do you do co-working with 4,000 people in your town? But <laughs> yeah. they did it, you know? And so again, small is beautiful there. So look up uh, Bethel, Vermont and uh, AARP there. I would, uh, you know, definitely with the links part, uh, yeah, I'm just realizing Chris, I didn't put this on there, but AARP's Livable Communities Program is doing great stuff. And if some of y'all out there, I know you are looking for funding, get ready for their their call next year. They just submit, they just released their last one, but pushing funds out to folks to do real projects in your cities, and uh, they are an amazing partner for for you. That's fantastic, Andrew. Thank you so much. Let me roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to and and where they can find you online. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we are super available for for doing new stuff where we always want to get challenged. Uh, so bring your troubles, bring your bring your weary parts of town to us. <laughs> we we love getting into those. We're, we're looking for cities right now and neighborhoods that that want to test uh, autonomous vehicles, really, and kind of their response to autonomous vehicles. Not hey, dump this technology on us and we'll react to it, but more of this is what we want our cities to look like and how do autonomous vehicles you know, fit into that uh, strategy. We're also again, looking for more of those micro mobility type projects as well. If, you've, if you're having some growing pains with those scooters, with, uh, with all those little devices that are kind of springing up around your community, let's get smart about it and let's, uh, let's, let's find a way for, for, for them to be a profitable piece and also, you know, serve serve people well there. So, if your if your city has kind of an edge on these emerging technologies, you know, give us a call, uh, shoot us a line at teambetterblock.com, and uh, we are very responsive to to everybody. Even if uh, even if you just need a little bit of a a push to get going to to do a project in your own town. This is great stuff, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time again today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.